Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, we have Jen Hagen, who is a family and consumer sciences agent for the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. She is located in Lee County, Florida. And the reason we brought her in, uh, it's really funny, actually, Jen, the reason I brought you in was because I started to see a, a lot of different conversations on the Florida Facebook beekeeping pages. And the groups were just talking about how we have a cottage food law and how the rules had just changed. And so I feel like there was so much information and, and it was very confusing to go through and identify what was right and what was wrong. And so, you know, you were really the person that I thought of um, when beekeepers were talking about the cottage food law and some of the rules and regulations. So I'm, I'm really excited to have you on today. Well, thank you. Likewise, I am very happy to be here and honored to help demystify some of these topics and um, regulations and likewise the exemptions um, from food safety requirements for beekeepers and cottage food operators. Well, awesome. So before we actually jump into that, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, your role with, you know, beekeeping or honeybees and what you do in your job position? Absolutely. So I am an extension agent, like you said, down in um, Lee County, which is Fort Myers, Florida. I work very closely in food systems. I do a lot of training with food safety education, everything in the field, all the way to the fork. Um, I help people navigate food related entrepreneurship. So if they're looking to start a food related business or understand the specifics when it comes to cottage food specifically, I can help them kind of navigate those different pieces of whatever food related business, hobby, um, anything like that. And so when it comes to food related entrepreneurship, I started to get a lot of questions from some of our local beekeepers when they too were confused as to whether they needed to process their honey in a commercial inspected and permitted location or whether they could do it at home. So one of the things I started to notice is there needed to be a little bit of clarification for beekeepers, um, whether they be, um, no pun intended, whether they um, be uh, beekeepers hobbyist or whether they were looking to go more commercial and sell their honey retail. So one of the things that um, we do is we started to educate all kinds of food related entrepreneurship and when I started working with the University of Florida, specifically with uh, the Bee Lab and starting to teach with Bee College, it became evident that there needed to be more education for beekeepers to understand whether they needed to operate under the cottage food exemption or whether they wanted to take their product retail and do it under the commercial regulations here in the state of Florida. So Jennifer, this is really a great expanding topic, right? All over the U.S. folks are, are faced with this. Probably in other countries, there are laws that govern whether or not they can sell direct to consumer. And, you know, in other words, cottage food equivalents, as it were. 
So, but, but using Florida as an example, kind of throughout our discussion of this topic, could you tell our listeners what cottage food is and, and why beekeepers should be familiar with this concept here in Florida, of course, but, but even beyond? Absolutely. So cottage food in Florida actually is an exemption from Florida's food safety regulations that allow people to operate a home kitchen business. And only the the cottage food um, exemption allows a very limited type of food products. So why are we talking about this with beekeepers? Well, honey is one of the permitted and allowable food products that one can process and sell under cottage food law. So basically cottage food just means that it's an exemption from commercial requirements that allows the beekeeper to process and bottle that honey in their home kitchen. But there are a couple of requirements that they have to be aware aware of in order to do that, Jamie. All right. So, so Jen, you were talking about, you know, bottling honey first, I guess one of the questions I have really is, is honey, the only honeybee product that would fall under cottage food law, you know, what does it mean to be a cottage food operation? And, you know, you had kind of discussed just bottling something in your house. Right. And so, um, just, I guess, expand on this a little bit. Sure. So uh, to back it up a little bit, a cottage food operation is the residence of where the person bottling or processing that honey would be or that cottage food product. So beyond honey, let's just say somebody has an excellent cookie recipe and they want to sell their cookies at a farmer's market or a pop-up market or some sort of venue such as that. Now under cottage food exemption, cookies like honey are a product, a food product that do not require time or temperature control for food safety. So basically what that means, that's a fancy way of saying that they are shelf stable. They do not require baking or refrigeration for that food product to be safe. So when a cottage food um, operation is, is up and running, they are dealing with only limited products and honey, the actual honey is the product that would be allowable under the cottage food requirements. So should we be, should I, as a consumer, be concerned about what's being sold under the cottage food law? So Amy, that's a good question. Should you as a consumer be concerned about a product that is coming out of a cottage food operation? Well, you know, we all should be concerned about where our food comes from because we wanna make sure that our food is safe for us to consume and we're not gonna get sick. So that is why under cottage food exemption, certain products are only allowed, and it again is a very limited list of products that are allowed because these products are not likely to get you sick because they do not require the time or temperature control for safety for that shelf stable product. This is a very intriguing topic to me. When I first got hired by the University of Florida, um, I, I don't believe honey was on the list. And there was this discussion that, you know, even if you had, um, you know, one colony and wanted to bottle some honey and sell it anywhere, you had to have a license, you know, do this in a licensed inspected kitchen, all this stuff, right? And yes. then honey was added. And I believe it was, and Jen, you're, you're an expert on this topic. I believe it was like $15,000 worth of sales were allowable. Then $50,000 of sales were allowable. And now it's a really high amount, isn't it? Was it 250 or am I making that up? 250,000 yeah. as of 20, 
21. So that's yeah. one of the amended um, parts of this exemption. Just like you're saying, Jamie, it's gone from 15,000 to 50,000 to now today, $250,000 of gross annual sales for cottage food products. So again, our listeners, I know that you're listening to us from all around the world, even within the US, this varies by state. So it's important that you check your local laws. And if you're out there listening in the world, you may also have rules and regulations related to this. But Jen, I've got this kind of question that just kind of keeps coming up and maybe there's no sure. answer for it. But I can extract, bottle and sell $250,000 worth of honey, um, you know, in my kitchen. But if I mm -hmm. sell $251,000, $250,001 worth of honey, I have to move to a licensed inspected kitchen. I mean, it seems Correct. to me, I just, I'm going to ask about the philosophy and logic of all this. It seems to me if a product is kind of safe at all, then it's safe across operation size. So why, you know, what's, the motivation in the case of honey for allowing up to $250,000 sales at a farmer's market or, or however you're able to do it through the cottage food law versus if it's slightly bigger, now you've got to have all these um, license inspections in order to be able to sell, say in a grocery store. So it's just, it's, it's always been one of those funny, I'll use the word funny, one of those funny sure. things to me. <laughs> Great. And, and I'm just gonna, you know, get to the, the quick of this. Um, the $250,000 limit really is about the threshold of sales. And when it comes to certain food products, there are thresholds as far as the monetary dollar amount that trigger you to either scale your business up in one way or another. Um, and when it comes to honey and cottage food, you have to stay at that 250 or under um, level. And here's why. So, and well, let me back up a little bit. You have the $250,000 limit that you have to stay below to operate as a cottage food operator. And really, Jamie, what it comes down to is if you are a cottage food operator and you are selling honey to your consumers, you can only do direct sales, direct to that consumer under cottage food. Where if you are a commercial beekeeper and you have, you know, the sky's the limit as far as how many sales and the dollar amount that you can gross each year, here's the caveat. You are not limited to selling just to your direct consumer. When you become a commercial cottage food, I'm sorry, excuse me, when you become a commercial beekeeper, you now can sell that honey retail. So you do not have to sell it just to your customer you can sell it at a grocery store, at a big box store, or retail across you know, different counters of establishments that might sell food products. So that really is the key, is determining who is your market and who do you hope to sell that honey to? So Jen, what, uh, what other food products are allowed under the cottage food exemption? I mean, if I made like a honey cake, I assume that wouldn't be allowed, I don't know. No, that would be allowed. Um, okay. So let me kind of break that down for you guys. There are allowable products, um, and some of those would be things like breads, um, cakes, pastries, candies, jams and jellies, um, homemade dry pasta, cereals, granola, and pop popcorn, things that you would be able to buy at a grocery store that again have some kind of shelf stable 
benefits um, and do not require heating or cooling to keep that food safe. So again, something that you might see at a big box store in the bakery department on a shelf. Does that make sense, Amy? It does. Mm -hmm. So again, honey has the ability to be shelf stable. So honey can sit in our cupboards, it can sit on our counters, it can travel with us, and it does not require that refrigeration or some kind of heating at a certain time and temperature to keep that product safe. So that's why Jamie um, and Amy that the honey got added to the cottage food um, exemption because it is considered a um, relatively safe and shelf stable product. So in 2021 here, in, um, there, there, there was the Home Sweet Home Act amendment passed. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about that and how it changes things? In Florida? Sure. So the biggest thing that happened in 2021 is, and we mentioned it a little bit already, the threshold of annual sales jumped from $50,000 to $250,000. So that was a huge change. Um, and it definitely gets people's attention when we're starting to increase those sales that you can have annually. Yeah, and Amy, you asked about baking cakes, right? So that's a lot of cakes. That's a, that lot, is of a lot of cakes. <laughs> a lot of cakes. You know, I think we um, did the ratio that if you were selling cupcakes and so, say you sold um, a cupcake for uh, $5 um, each and you had to, to make that threshold, it was something like 11 dozen cupcakes a day you would have to make to sell in order to hit that. Hit that at your house, yeah. at your house. At your house. So you can imagine the volume and the storage that you would need to be able to meet that threshold. Now, um, honey's a little different, um, but you know, same thing. But the biggest thing, Jamie, to answer your question is the threshold changed for annual sales from 50,000 to 250,000. But one of the other biggest pieces that the Home Sweet Home Act um, allowed cottage food operators to do is it opened up how they are able to get their product to their consumers. Now, remember, under cottage food exemption, you have to sell directly to your consumer. So Amy, if you and I, um, if, if you know, I had this honey cake that you were just obsessed with, I would have to meet you somewhere, perhaps in a parking lot, or you'd have to buy that cake from me at a farmer's market. Um, and I would have to physically hand that cake over to you. Now, in 2021, the biggest change was I can now send that cake to you through either US postal mail or a commercial mail carrier. So I can now ship that cake to you in not only Florida, but interstate. So that was a huge piece that now you have the option to not only advertise and sell over the internet, you now can ship that product to your customer. That's very interesting. You know, it seems, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out, so besides you had mentioned the retail aspect of it, you know, mm -hmm. what other benefits would I have as a commercial beekeeper to not sell under the cottage food law? Oh, okay. So that's a very good question. And again, this is really, it comes down to this. When you are a commercial beekeeper, you do not have to sell directly to your customer. So you can sell wholesale, you can sell consignment, you can sell your product in a grocery store or in a big box store, 
or you can sell it to other you know distributors um, another thing that you need to be aware of is if you are a commercial beekeeper you also do not have to store that honey in your house. Imagine having to have an area of your house where you store your complete inventory of honey. That's a lot of honey. And depending on your home, the size of your home kitchen, you are bound if you're operating under cottage food to make sure that that honey is stored within your home. That does not mean in a garage. That does not mean in a shed. That means in your residence. So commercial beekeepers are not bound by that. They can store it at a food establishment. They can store it at a commissary. Or if they wanted to have their own mobile, um, you know, if they want to take this show on the road and have some kind of uh, mobile vending unit or a honey trailer that they operate out of, or I have even seen you guys honey vending machines, which is just amazing. But you as a commercial beekeeper, your sky's the limit in regards to where you can sell your honey. Where if you're operating under the commercial, I'm sorry, the cottage food exemption, you have to store that honey in your house and you have to sell that honey directly to your clients or your customers or your consumer. All I can think about when you talk about this is having $250,000 worth of honey it's so much sitting stuff. in my house. <laughs> if yeah. you bottle all that in one pound jars, you have to sell direct to consumer 250,000 times, which means you have to answer, do you ever get stung 250,000 times? Oh my, <laughs> yes. When you're working directly with consumers. <laughs> and another thing um, that I always have people think about your home is where you live and obviously your kitchen is usually command central okay and i don't know what goes on in your house but my house is chaos so i cannot imagine having to use my home kitchen all the time to process honey because we know bottling honey processing honey it's a sticky situation. Could you imagine if you used your home kitchen all the time to process that honey? I think we would all literally be stuck to the countertop in my household. I don't know about you all. I think my dogs would be pretty happy about that though. Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's <laughs> something right. to consider is, you know, where yeah. you're processing that honey and the impact on your household it may have. So Jen, I know that you and I have been working on an EDA's publication. We've been working to revise EDA's publications to put exactly what the rules and regulations are uh, for the cottage food law here in Florida. There's also on the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services website, they have like a bunch of questions where, you know, it's like true or false questions, right? And they give you different scenarios, which I think is very helpful, actually. Um, so, you know, like I said at the beginning of this segment, I, there was just a lot of misinformation going out there. And so my question for you is where would you go to find the most accurate information? I mean, how do you know and where do you go to find that information that is that is absolutely 100% correct? Okay, well, if you're in Florida, just like you mentioned, Amy, there's a couple um, key documents that you can refer, refer to. The Florida Department of Ag and Consumer Sciences has what they call a cottage food guidance document. And it's a PDF, a four page PDF that answers all the frequently asked questions. It has the definitions for cottage food, cottage food operations. And then it also 
has a lot of information that you need as far as labeling your product, the requirements of who you can sell to, who you cannot sell to, and like you said, the frequently asked questions. Through, through the University of Florida, we also have not only the EDIS document that you're talking about, Amy, which is the bottling, labeling, and selling honey in Florida, but we also have another EDIS document that is just called Cottage Food in Florida. And these three documents are very helpful for the Florida beekeeper, whether they're a hobbyist, backyard, or commercial um, beekeeper. Now, if you are listening to us from above and beyond Florida, um, you would definitely reach out to not only your local extension service, because they can help you navigate this, but your department of ag and your department of food services would be able to direct you um, to help you in your state or wherever you may be located understand your unique requirements or exemptions when it comes to processing or bottling honey at your geographic location. That is such good advice because, you know, we're, Jen, we're here talking about Florida. We're all working in Florida and we have these cottage food laws here, but there are similar laws that may be slightly different in other states. And, and I'm, I'm virtually certain around the world where you bottle and sell honey, uh, in many cases, maybe even most cases, you're going to be regulated in, in some way to ensure safety and quality. And I, I think just what you said, Jen, is, is perfect. Reach out to those right folks. Make sure that you're um, handling your honey and maybe even your other bee products, food products uh, correctly so it won't come back to bite you later. And also make you uh, a better businessman or woman and much better at, at, at ensuring that you've got a quality and safe product going out to uh, the consumers. So, Jen, just to sum everything up, uh, can you just tell us one more time, you know, the difference between beekeepers operating under the cottage food law versus uh, the commercial beekeepers that are required to be permitted and inspected? Absolutely. Um, and as a beekeeper, if you're deciding which avenue you want to follow, it really comes down to three things in my perspective. Um, it comes down to who do you ultimately want to sell your honey, you know, your targeted audience or customer base where ultimately do you plan on processing and bottling your honey the actual location of where that is going to happen and third is where are you going to store your end product because those three questions really help you to understand what you need to do do you want to operate under the cottage food exemption or do you want to have the flexibility under the commercial requirements to be a commercial operation. So really, Amy, Jamie, it comes down to sales, processing, and storage of honey that can help these beekeepers make their decision of which way they want to pursue their business. All right. Thank you so much, Jen. And I will be sure to link all of the EDIS documents and some of the other information on our show notes after the podcast. But thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Okay, everyone, that was Jen Hagen, Family and Consumer Sciences Agent for the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences, located in Lee County, Florida. She is your Florida cottage food person. So if you have any questions, we'll be sure to link her information and you can reach out to her then.
Jamie, Jen's actually one of my really good personal friends. And so, you know, as soon as we had the opportunity to collaborate with each other, I was really excited about that. Yeah, you know, I really love what she was talking about. It's really neat that you were able to bring her here to Florida to uh, the Bee College, for example, to speak to our beekeepers. And I know that uh, there's a lot of folks out there listening. I've said it multiple times throughout the interview. You know, this is relevant for you because you, you might have similar requirements of you, even, even if you're not in the U.S. and you're listening to this, you might have similar requirements for how you uh, uh, process and bottle the, and your honey. And you may be living under different constraints of who you can sell to and all this. And keep in mind, the whole purpose of this is to make sure you have a nice and safe product. Right, right. And, you know, the other thing, too, I, I was just thinking the whole time, I'm so glad she's the person who, you know, I'm glad we have a contact person for that. And I feel like every state has a contact person for either a cottage food law, if they have a cottage food law, or, you know, if they want to be a certified kitchen, you know, there, there are resources available for us, which I think is just really amazing, because sometimes, you know, you forget about those little pieces, and then you're like, well, where do I go to find this information, right? So I think just having the resource is really nice as well. But, you know, one of the things that was really intriguing to me about all of this, Amy, when I first got here is like I mentioned, honey wasn't even listed on the cottage food list. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in theory, every beekeeper was expected to be able to bottle and extract in these licensed and inspected facilities. And, right. and you know, the beekeepers here in Florida, for our specific case, um, they lobbied to change that. And, and it was changed. And you know, as we talked, it went from 15 to 50 to $250,000. So I, mean, I can't, I can't get over that. that. <laughs> I don't even know what that looks like, but it's, it's yeah. mind boggling. Um, I, I remember growing up in Georgia, um, selling my honey at farmer's markets and stuff. And I was completely oblivious to things that I may or may not was supposed to be doing at the time. Right. So it's neat as a grown up to, to be able to hear all of this and, and to know that hopefully we're answering that question for folks here in the U.S., but also around the world who may or may or may not know that they have these regulations to address. Right. And, the, you know, the other piece of it that I don't think we really touched on much was that it really depends on the market that you're selling at, because, you know, if you are selling at certain farmers markets, I know that they have specific criteria that you have to follow, right? So maybe you can sell under a cottage food lot. Maybe you can't. Maybe you need to you know, ensure that you have some sort of licensing. So, so that's the other piece that we didn't really mention, but I do think is very important is depending on, you know, where you're selling your project or product or who you're selling it to, um, to know what those requirements are, because, you know, I used to work with growers that, that worked and sold to grocery stores and each grocery store actually had their own requirements for what the grower needed, um, you know, to, to be able to even sell there. Hey, and I'll, I'll even add to that. One of the things about the intriguing, the, one of the intriguing things to me about the Florida cottage food law is it expanded to include internet sales, like what she was saying. And that's, right, right. that's interesting to me because, you know, originally it was direct to consumer. You have to shake the person's hand, right. You know, either mm -hmm. at your front porch or at a farmer's market or something, but now it's still considered direct to consumer if you're shipping it over the internet, which frankly opens up a, a, a really big potential market for people again here in florida those rules may vary by state or location wherever you live around right. the world but it's the whole the whole interview was good i'm so grateful we have her as a resource and i hope if you're listening out there it really just helps you produce a better safer product it's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp.
right, we are back at that question and answer time. And today, Jamie, our questions are all about queens and swarming. I feel like we have had a lot of questions about swarming, especially because right now is April 2022, and this is just prime swarm time. That's it. You tend to get yep. those questions that occur at the time <laughs> of year. You could you can always tell when swarm season starts because the swarm questions start rolling in. I know. Next year, I'm just going to be like a robot and just forward all of these podcast episodes. You know, the hey, Q and hey, what's your robot people. voice? <laughs> I am. This is my robot voice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't sound very different. I mean, I'm not sure. Oh, it didn't. Oh it man. Just, okay. Be, Exactly. Okay. So the first question is, what is the best timing to check a hive after it's swarmed? (laughs) Well, I'm going to answer that question from a slightly different perspective. For me, I tend to check my colonies weekly during swarm season. So for me, that would be April and May. That's roughly maybe starts at the end of March, but let's just make it easy and say April and May. That way, if for some reason my swarm control tactics failed, I will not be any further than six or so days after the colony swarmed before working the swarm. So imagine that I work a colony on Saturday, it swarms on Sunday, and I go look at it next Saturday. That's about the most amount of time between working it and seeing it again, you know, it's swarming and me seeing it again. So Mm -hmm. if you're working colonies roughly weekly, during swarm season, then you're going to be, you know, right on cue to be able to notice that that colony swarmed and then figure out what you're supposed to do about it. Okay. So, you know, when a colony swarms, sometimes there are some swarm cells or supersedure cells and they're on the frame in the original colony. And so should this person leave the swarm cells or what do you do with these cells? Is it better to get rid of them or what's your recommendation? So when I read this question, a series of questions, my assumption is that the individual who's asking the question is asking them because they want to use those cells to requeen their hive. And let me let me just paint a bigger picture here. Right. So a colony swarms. It usually swarms with the old queen in the nest. The very first swarm, at least swarms with the old queen in the nest. So you've lost that queen. She's no longer there. The colony Mm -hmm. has multiple queen cells available. And if you do nothing at all, one of the queens will emerge from one of those cells and the colony may swarm again with her. And if they do, that would be called a secondary swarm. Okay. And if they do the next queen to emerge, they may also swarm with her. That might be a tertiary swarm and so on. But at some point when a queen emerges from one of those cells, it could be after the first swarm, it could be after the fourth swarm, but at some point when the new queen emerges, she is going to go and kill all the other queens developing in their cells. Mm -hmm. So if you do nothing at all, you're setting yourself up for perhaps secondary, tertiary, and so forth swarms where the colony continues to get weaker and weaker because it's continuing to swarm. Or the colony is going to go through requeen mode because it's determined that it's finished swarming and it's going to allow a queen to emerge and to kill her competition and become the reigning matriarch in the hive. Both of those in the best scenario results in you ultimately having a laying queen in those hives. But of course that can fail. You can fail, this process can fail and you could end up with no queen at all. So what I like to do, since I'm, you know, checking my colonies about once a week during swarm season anyway, when I see that they have swarmed, I'll know that because they're queenless, right? And I've lost some adult bee population. And so in that particular case, I want to requ- 
between those colonies as quickly as possible. If nothing, if no other options at all are available to me, nothing, I can't easily purchase a queen or I don't have any other queens on hand or I, I don't have any nucleus colonies on hand that I can use to requeen this swarm or this colony, then what I will do is I will go through and remove all queen cells except the largest one or two. And that's because I'm going to, you know, do some selection. I'm going to make an overgeneralization here, but generally speaking, the bigger the cell, the more attention the queen got while she was mm -hmm. developing. So I'm just working on the, the premise that these larger cells have better developing queens in them. So I'll remove all but the largest one or two cells, assuming that they're going to be better quality queens. The reason I sometimes lead to, to, leave two is because I don't always trust that the one that I pick is going to survive. So sometimes I'll leave two. The risk of leaving two is if you leave two, that first one to emerge may go with a secondary swarm, right? So if right. you want to do away with all swarming altogether, you'll leave only the largest one. But if you're worried a little bit about the likelihood of that largest one having a queen that emerges, then you might leave the largest two. So I'll leave the largest one or two and then allow nature to take its uh, course and the queen to emerge, kill her competition, go out on mating flights, and ultimately become the one who's laying eggs in that hive. Now, keep in mind, if you do that process, it might cost you five, six, seven weeks of brood production by the time the queen emerges, mm -hmm. mates, and lays eggs. So you might actually want that to happen faster, in which case you'll call in a mated queen or you'll um, requeen using a nuke, which is my preferred option of dressing it. But to make a long story short, what do I do with queen cells after my colony swarms? If I want them to make a new queen that way, I'll remove all but the largest one or two. But if I have other ways of requeening it, I remove every one of them and requeen that, that colony a different way. Right. Okay. So this kind of ties into our third question. So you were talking about secondary swarms and tertiary swarms and the whole process it takes for a queen to go out on her mating flight and come back to the colony. And so the third question is, you know, do the second and tertiary swarms leave with the mated queen or are those virgin queens? I mean, how yeah. fast is that process? Yeah, that's a good question. So the very first swarm that typically leaves with the production, uh, sorry, the mated queen, the old mom in the nest, as it were, we, we usually refer to that as the primary swarm. So that first swarm that leaves with the mated queen, that's the primary swarm. Usually secondary swarms, tertiary swarms, and so forth are led by virgin queens. So a virgin okay. queen will emerge and the bees will determine they still want to swarm. And so that swarm will swarm with the virgin queen. I will tell you, there's a lot of interesting dynamics that's going on under those circumstances. It, just think about it from this biological perspective. Let's say that the queen, that the colony in preparation for swarming makes 20 queen cells. This is for the sake of the argument mm -hmm. kind of discussion. The colony swarms, the old queen leaves, half the bees leave, and now you've got 20 queen cells. There is a reasonable chance that any two or three or four of those queens are in the same stage of development. So if the bees do nothing at all, you might get three, four or five queens emerging at the same time. So usually when they're wanting to swarm with a secondary or tertiary swarm, what they will do is the workers will congregate around queen cells and they will allow a queen to emerge but not the others to emerge. They may keep them in those queen cells so that that first queen 
to emerge, leaves with a secondary swarm, and then they will permit another queen to emerge that may leave with a tertiary swarm. And then they will permit maybe a, another queen to emerge who they will then allow to go through and kill all of her developing sisters. So there's a very interesting science associated here. You can read a lot, you know, this whole Q&A has been about swarms. You can read a lot about swarm biology through Dr. Tom Seeley's world famous mm -hmm. book, Honeybee Democracy. Mm -hmm. It's a must read if you like all things bee biology, but um, how they decide when to, when to stop swarming, because it's not always obvious. Sometimes they'll swarm themselves into a really tiny colony, right? Before right. There, there's very few bees left. And sometimes it might be a huge colony that swarms with that primary swarm and then they don't swarm again. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the decision-making process behind that for the bees is really one of those things that people are continuing to unravel. But to make a long story short, these tertiary swarms, secondary swarms, so forth, they are usually led by virgin queens. That is so funny. I was thinking, so I, I read a little bit of the Honeybee Democracy book and, you know, it talks about how um, they basically, they're foragers that go out, they're, you know, scouts, right? They look for different locations and then they come back to try to convince the other workers, like my location's the best, you need to choose this. And then they send more scouts out and then they, you know, decide together that they're going to this location. And so I'm thinking about like the secondary and tertiary swarms of like the crew of bees that are just like so convinced that their location is so good and it may not be part of the first crew. So they're like, we're going to go anyway. And we're taking this queen with us. She's not made it, but we're going to take her anyway. Is that yeah, how that works? It's really mind boggling science. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think they've unraveled all of it, but I will tell you what, what's interesting to me in that kind of that story that you told there is if bees leave with a secondary swarm, why didn't they leave with the primary swarm? Right. If they leave with the tertiary swarm, why didn't they leave with the primary or the secondary swarm? Yeah. At what point does a worker go, <laughs> go okay, it's now my turn, or I, you're just the first crew leaving. We think we're going to swarm again, so we'd yeah. rather go with the second crew. It's, you know, there's so much in bees, bee research and bee science, bee biology. We still need to unravel. So if you're out there listening and want to get some good graduate student experience, there's a lot of projects <laughs> that you can work on to really satisfy that that science bug as it were. All right, so those were our three questions. And actually in our next Q&A segment, we're gonna do three more questions and it's uh, also about queens and swarming. And so thank you so much for your questions. We've really been enjoying getting your questions email on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. For more information and resources on today's episode, check out the Honeybee Research Lab website at ufhoneybee.com. If you have questions you want answered on air, email them to us at honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on social media at ufhoneybeelab on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was hosted by Jamie Ellis and Amy Vu. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Vu and Sarah Sowers. Thanks for listening and see you next week.